This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Lamigo. This week, Rebecca and I chat with charity majors about deploying on Fridays. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 118. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly. And I'm Rebecca Marshburn. And you're listening to Serverless Chats. Hey, Rebecca. Hey, I am so excited that I'm going to say no banter for us today. Tell us who we're listening to. Yeah, I agree that we have an amazing guest today. So our guest is the CTO and co-founder at Honeycomb, uh, co-author of Database Reliability Engineering and the upcoming Observability Engineering Achieving Production Excellence book. Uh, She's a regular speaker, a writer of some absolutely amazing articles. Charity Majors is with us today. Hey, Charity, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So um, we noticed we were talking just you know, quickly before the show here, and we noticed you were doing some painting. So besides painting, what else have you been up to lately? <laughs> what else have I been up to? Uh, you know, gradually starting to get back to the world. Um, I went out for drinks with uh, Nora Jones uh, Wednesday night, and then I was supposed to go out last night, but I realized that going out once on Wednesday blew my entire social budget for the rest of the week. I just, it was too hard. I couldn't do it. I'm going to have to work my way back up slowly. So, whew. <laughs> yeah, well, introverts. I'm, <laughs> right. Well, I'm getting on a plane to go to reInvent in a couple of weeks. And Holy shit. I'm like, I haven't been on a plane <laughs> since February of 2020, I think, uh, when yeah. I came back from Nashville. So, uh, and I think uh, somebody else posted the other day that like traveling for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic, don't think I remember how to do any of this stuff. So I'm like, I, I, I don't know. It's gonna be it's it's gonna be an adjustment getting back into um, all the stuff. So, yep. well, anyways, we um, we have a whole bunch of things that we would love to talk to you about today, um, and I wanted to start um, actually with an article that you wrote. Um, uh, quite a while back, which was called The Future of Ops Careers. Um, and in that article, you actually called out the serverless musical that I did, the Lambda um, yeah. the Lambda serverless musical. I did, didn't I? Um, <laughs> and, uh, and you said that, although you liked the, the song, that you thought it would be better, rather than saying reducing ops, that serverless reduces ops, um, that, you know, that it really should be more about improving your ops. Um, and I totally agree with you, too. And I think we had a little bit of, uh, we had a little bit of banter back and forth on, on Twitter oh, about it. But, I- I also completely concede that the rhyme was better the way you did it. It was was I think that was my argument. My argument was it's you know there was a lot of rhymes going on in that, so it did it did work out well. But I'm but I actually that's I think you bring up a good point because I totally agree with you and and I uh, and one of the things I never tried to do or I I certainly don't try to do and I know some people do um, is to equate this idea of serverless with no ops. I mean I don't think in any world that serverless is going to allow you to do you know to completely ignore ops. So I'm just curious from from your standpoint point, like what is the, you know, in that serverless world, I think you reduce certain types of ops, but you can also do other ops better. So like, what's your take on that? Like, what do you think serverless enables ops teams to do better? Well, fundamentally operations is just um, the practice of delivering software to users, right? And of doing it well. Um, So you, you can't, if you have users and you have code and you want to get one to the other, like you can't have no ops. 
what was your question again? <laughs> I just, in ter- I mean, in, in the serverless world, I mean, if, yeah. if you are oh, reducing yeah. Yeah, certain, yeah, yeah. and, and, and totally. I think this is, this goes back to maybe this idea of toil. And I, I think that yeah. it, unfairly sometimes operations get sort of put into yeah. this bucket of toil. For sure. Um, and, and I they're think- like the defenders of last resort at the castle, right? right? If, if, if the dragons have gotten through all the other teams and all the other soldiers, ops is the ones who, who are going to make sure that the company, there's still a company tomorrow after the you know, like it, right. the shit lands on us if, if if it hasn't been fixed further upstream indefinitely. Yeah, and and I do I I do think there's a real place for SRE teams or ops teams or whatever you want to call them in a serverless world, while also acknowledging that you know the the lines are blurred and right. and you know most ops people are now software engineers as well, right? Because it's all about automating, it's all about moving up the stack. But, you know, there, there are a couple of different models that I've seen companies be really successful with. Um, one of them is, you know, using ops as like internal consultants, basically. They're expert in systems. Um, you own your code, but ops, they, they know how to, you know, get the alerting and the SLOs and they know what good software um, systems smell like and look like and, and they know how to make sure that you're integrating the security and you know all this stuff um, which which is a very real like basket of expertise that most software engineers don't have and 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 never will because they're not being exposed to quite as many fires on the front end um, but right. you know so like Fender is one of our customers who's heavy into serverless and they have a great world-class SRE team, right? And the SRE team is, is focused on um, enabling and empowering the software engineers to own their code in production and making it so that, you know, the observability tooling uses re- reusable libraries and, you know, that there's a schema, a naming schema for, you know, the fields that you're using and, and making sure that, you know, when when reliability is going down, that you've got kind of a coach there to, to, to help you figure out how to get it back. Um, so, so yeah, I think that, you know, I think that we're getting better. Like, we're such pessimists in the in this industry, but we're legitimately right. getting better at doing software. <laughs> we're able to do less. We're able to do more with less um, at, at an accelerating rate. And more and more teams are, are, you know, leaning heavily into the things that, you know, we've been talking about ever since Jazz and, and then published the, the old CICD book, you know. These technologies and these practices are finally coming of age and, you know, the speed of processors and disks and, and, and everything just keeps getting cheaper. And so we're able to, you know, collect more and do more with it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but things are getting better. And, and I think this speaks to um, a lot of the movement that SREs and ops have been going through in the last few years, too. So you're talking a little bit about this, um, almost what I would say, you saw that it said blurred, blurry lines, right? But maybe it's a permeable membrane between yeah. um, ops folks and uh, I don't even want to say ops folks, like it's two separate buckets, but let's say yeah. like ops people, as you said, are even turning into software engineers and they, that yeah. those things are I've um, always liked the term systems engineer. <laughs> yeah, systems right. engineer. You know, I do too. And, and I feel and I feel like it, it's um, it's almost like we're the code pessimists. Yes, we can write code. Um, and we will do so as a last resort um, <laughs> after exhausting all other possibilities, which is a really good thing to have on your system is, is people who t- approach it from that perspective instead of just like, more code, more code, more code. You know, off people see, see more code and they're just like, uh. 
So. Yeah, so if we think about that idea of systems engineer, I'm wondering if you have um, if you have any advice for ops-minded people who maybe need to also help reconfigure their brain and also like you know move up the stack and, and be a systems engineer, not or perhaps less focused on what used to be like here's the ops bucket and then here's the engineering bucket. Do you have any yeah, yeah advice for them to be yeah. like, hey, you might be looking at the wrong skills now. Here's how to perhaps think about it in this world we're in. Yeah, well, that's why I wrote that piece that Jeremy referred to up, up front, where, where I quoted his wonderful rap. Um, which, if you if you all haven't haven't listened to it or watched it, you, you really owe it to yourself to look it up. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, but yeah, I I think that there's there's kind of a divergence. There's a kind of a fork in the road that's coming up for for ops people. And you know, this has been a long time coming. I remember when I got started. You know, when I was seventeen and in college, I was the sysadmin for the mass stat department. You know, this involved everything from going down to the colo every time the database went down to flip a switch or like to manually like jiggle the RAM. You know, <laughs> uh, there were no remote switches or, or anything like that. Like you were responsible for everything. If you were doing databases, you had to figure out, you know, the RPMs of the disks and how to like position the indexes at the right, you know, like you were doing everything. And um, I, for one, never want to have to go to a colo again. I'm delighted that AWS does that part of my ops for me. They're better at it than I am. And, and that's all great. Right. So like as, as you know, systems engineers are, are moving up the stack too, um, you know, it used to be that any technology company had to employ just an army of folks to do everything from, hell, I used to be like the mail admin, you know, I, I was so good at like PostFix and ClamAV and antivirus software and all this shit, IMAP, you know, I'd run IMAP and debug it for the CEO, you know, like we had to run mail, we had to run DNS, we had to run, you know, just like everything. And, you know, that was really costly and it was really expensive and it was a lot of territory to, to cover. Now, like the reason that we're able to move so fast and have so much, you know, innovation and so much, you know, speed and in, 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 like startups that are like, like spinning up every day is because, you know, so much of that has become commodity and so much of it we don't have to deal with anymore. Um, so, you know, instead of being like this full stack systems engineer to coin a phrase. Um, I think that, you know, the only people who really, the only companies that really need that sort of experience uh, are the the closed systems, the Facebooks, the Googles, et cetera. Um, and so if you're an infrastructure, you've really kind of got two choices. Um, if you if you love your infrastructure, like you, you, you want to eat, sleep, and if you if you love being a mail admin, you don't want to give it up. You have to go work for a company that does that as a service, right? right? You have to go work for an infrastructure company where so that you're not a cost center that just is trying to be minimized, minimized, right? You need to go where the stuff that you do is best in class for for the entire world, you know, providing it as a service, you know, whether that's like you know, I used to run mailing list software. Now we've got all of these start these companies that do it for us, right? So you've got to go somewhere um, where what you want to do is is the specialty. It, it is what you are doing, or you can go the direction of of being like sort of a high level assert somebody who understands systems well enough. But your your job is 
is not to build software, it's to empower software engineers. You're almost more like an in-house coach. You know, you, you're the one with the, with all of the the like industry experience about how to how to do SLOs and when is the right time to you know is your backup strategy like sane and redundant to the like the right numbers of you know reliability um you need to be able, and, and and your role is much almost more of an that what more of one of it being an educator um than anything and, and a lot of times you know it's about helping your company um, figure out when to lean into trends and invest them and and when it's a waste of time right your job is to make sure that every fresh young engineer that comes in the door gets indoctrinated in the ways of the system and the on-call and the pager and and learns how to you know pull their weight um, but it's, you, you know, and sometimes you may jump in and you may be the release engineer. You may be, you know, CICD, you know, all that socio-technical stuff that goes into, you know, running systems. Um, but it will be constantly changing. Um, it will be a thin, it's just never going to be a large cohort of people, right? It'll be like a ratio of maybe one or two SREs to every, uh, sorry, one SRE to every 10 or 20 software engineers, Right. And, and it's really it's a very senior role, I think. It, I, it's really hard for me to see where the new junior systems people are really going to come from, which is a whole different topic. I, I'll stop now for breath. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was going to say, if you haven't um, administered or ran your own mail server, then you just haven't lived. Um, you know, those those Amen. are the days I, I remember that as well. I remember the, God, the first. I was- God, go I miss grepping my mail spools, don't you? Right. Yeah, exactly. Or the first time I got a um, uh, a remote KVM for my co-location facility, it oh, was like, it was magic. I could control machines remotely. Oh, it I was know. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, I think you make a really interesting point, though, about, you know, there was this class of engineer or, or, uh, or operations person that was like a systems engineer, was like managing those actual systems. And then we moved to a point where even the configuration of some of these systems, even some of the failover, the tolerance, some of these things um, are being built by the developers who are, you know, coding these things with infrastructure as code and handling yeah. some of that. But I mean, if we go back to the sort of toil thing, I always looked at my maintenance of my infrastructure when I actually had to go to a co-location facility at 2 a.m. to swap a drive. Um, that was just things that were like, it provided value in that I kept the system up and running, but it really added no value to to the no. work that I did. I didn't feel no. valuable going and swapping a drive. No. There but, was a lot of wasted time and effort there. A lot of wasted time and effort. So now you move to where you've got these massive data centers and the cloud's running them for you. You've got managed services and you move to this next level. And you, you, know, you said something like a CICD engineer or something like that. I mean, if I'm a developer and I'm trying to move fast, I can learn Lambda and I can learn Fargate and I can learn Kubernetes maybe in terms of how I might do some configuration there. Maybe I learn, you know, DynamoDB or uh, some other specialty services. But do I want to go deep on IAM? Do I want to go deep on the (laughs) CICD release process? Do I want to go deep on making sure all my KMS keys are rotated on a regular basis? So I do think that there is a lot of work that can be done that's still, I, I hate to call it toil, but the, the things that are specialty that someone needs to learn that still it's, it's your developer doesn't want to do. It's, it's how I think of it. It's platform engineering. And right. I don't like to think of it in terms of what the developers want to do or not, because they can be prissy little, little fucks sometimes. Uh, <laughs> We're but, gonna put but the, the explicit point is like, uh, thing on, on, this, on this episode. That's fine. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, 
But like, they're not wrong sometimes when it's like, you know, this is a thing that, you know, we don't want every developer to go off and solve it in a different way, right? right. Yes. We want there to be a golden path. We want it to be well-researched. We want it to be, you know, flexible, but but not, you know, but not wiggly, right? We, we want to make sure that there's standardization. We want to make sure that the choices are well understood. We want to, you know, and, and, and if it's, if, if it's something that is, you know, being built for the platform, then, you know, you, you'll get into the situation where like people are like, like the, it's like musical chairs. Like the first one to hit it has to like take a detour for two or three weeks to like build this, you know, authentication thing or, or something. And, and, and that's just like, it's a cost that's being, you know, born unfairly by some developer and, you know, now there, there is still definitely a role for building platform stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is a pretty software engineering e-role, but it, it's kind of a hybrid systems and software and it, and it does assume a lot of good judgment, you know? Um, so, so yeah, but, but I, but I do think that the, um, you know, Platform platform engineering teams are kind of, I think, slowly taking over a lot of the territory that used to be SRE ops and absorbing a lot of those people. We actually at Honeycomb, we don't have any uh, ops team. We have a platform engineering team, um, which has one one um, self described SRE on it, mm-hmm. um, and you know we're at you know we're at like you know we're getting pretty pretty large. So, but the only reason that we've been able to do that of course, is because we had um, ops expertise from day one. So we never got into that hole that most companies get into where they're like, oh, fuck, we have a bunch of code and now we have some users. Shit. <laughs> and then somebody has to come in and like undo everything they've done and do it correctly and, and all that stuff. Right, right. Charity, what I what I love about what we or your answers is that there's a lot of philosophy baked into them, whether or not we couch it as like philosophically, let's talk about, you know, systems engineering or let's talk about where ops is going. There's another philosophy uh, or philosophical, I think, you know, umbrella that you hold really dear, which is philosophies around deploying on Fridays. Um, I know that's one of your favorite topics. And if Honestly, if anyone is interested in reading more of your thoughts on the matter, I we will both recommend, Jeremy and I, that you just Google Charity Majors Friday Deploy. And that's it. It'll be a good surprise for you. Um, but Charity, I'd love maybe if you could start with your general thoughts on Friday Deploys. L- I'd love to like set the baseline for the Charity Majors philosophy on this. Sure. And, and this is something place where I think people like to paint me as a radical and just like a fire breather or something. I'm not. Like... I am from ops. I am I am a pragmatist at heart. Um, I am not trying to like you know draw a line in the sand. And be like if you don't do this, you you are terrible. You know, um, my point is just that you know if you are unable to deploy for a solid twenty percent of your week, that's not great. That's not something to aspire to. It's 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 not you know. And some people will be like, well, this is a sign of how much I value my people and, and their weekends and everything. And I'm like, no, it's not. If you really valued their time that, that much, you wouldn't want them to only be protected from this on, on Fridays. You, you know, people get paged overnight all week long. If you really care about your people, you will fix this problem so that deploys are safe, reliable, so easy, easy to flip back and refer, easy for engineers to deploy their own shit. It should be a nothing burger, right? It should be like, it's, it's like the heartbeat of your system. It's, and heartbeat should be regular, predictable, 
trivial, like nothing, right? Small diffs, one engineer at a time. They should go out just like constantly all day long. Um, and if, if you've done these things, it will make absolutely no sense to you to block off Fridays, right? And, you know, there, there are some places where, you know, some people have extreme situations. Some people, la la la. I don't know everyone's specific situations. And there are some situations that, you know, I'm like, okay, that's valid. But for the most part, I hear a lot of excuses. <laughs> right. For the most part, I hear a lot of shit that makes me see that they just haven't done the work. <laughs> right. If it takes them an hour or two to get their code out, I'm pretty sure they're batching together a whole bunch of engineers to code at once, which is like there are like five things wrong with this. <laughs> you know, like if, if it takes you that long to get shit out, like the amount of time it takes you to get a single line of code out into production is extremely telling. Like, can you do that? In 15 minutes or less if so like you can probably ship on fridays like no no problems right um if you're doing auto deploys you know if you're if, if you're you know it's just it all kind of goes together and i just don't like seeing it used as an excuse to not improve you know if you can't get there I get that, you know, sometimes people are dealing with a lot of legacy shit or they've got external, you know, customers and requirements. I'm just saying you can probably get a lot closer than you are now and it will be nothing but benefit to your people. Like every step that you can get towards being able to auto deploy regularly will help people, will save time, will will make your engineers' lives more joyful. <laughs> like it's win, 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 win. And so I don't understand why people continue to just radically under under invest in this area. Right. And and that's and that's one of the things that again, if you if uh, people go and read a lot of what you write, you 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 take the stance of there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to deploy on Friday. It shouldn't be a hard and fast rule. And and a lot of I think what you talk about and I think a lot of what we see um, is the idea that people just find deployments to be very risky, um, which yeah. is really scary when you think about it, that people are like, hey, uh, if I deploy this, I could bring the whole system down. And and you mentioned this idea of like, you know, single or small deployments, single individual developer mm -hmm. deployments. And I, you talk about all this stuff. And again, I, I suggest people go and read your blogs and the things that you've the written because there's a like lot of... We we have this like instinct as, instinct as humans like it's like it's like an instinct that is just ingrained in us when when things are scared scary we freeze right yeah. when things are when we're when we're scared you know if we're walking in the woods and we don't know what we're gonna step on we slow the fuck down right. right the problem is with software speed is safety right and this is just something that we have to like you know, get our heads around that speed is safety. The more, the more quickly you can do it, you know, the smaller the diffs you can do it. That's how you make, that's how you, 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 if you freeze up and you try to enact more control and more barriers and more gates and more processes, you're only hurting yourself like a lot. <laughs> right, right. And, and that's what you, that's what you talk about when you're saying small diffs. It, if people aren't sure what you mean by that, you're talking about doing small deployments like, you know, or, or, or merging code, single, you know, single feature or even smaller than that, I guess, merging that code as quickly as possible, getting that into production. And then you have another thing that you talk about observability driven development where you're building in to, you know, basically build in the tools you need to that code so that you can observe it and you know yeah. that if it works. And if you can do that quickly and you can put that code into production 
If something breaks, right after you wrote that code is the best time for you to go back and fix it. Um, not for you to wait like a month later and then be like, I don't even remember writing this code, let alone how it's supposed to work. So maybe dive into that. Why is Why are these single merge deploys so important? Well, it's, it's more about, you know, it's about having one engineer's changes at a time go out in, in, in large part, because, you know, if you know that your code is going to be live in 10 minutes, you're very likely to go look at it. If you're right. pretty sure that your code and up to a dozen other people's code is going to go live at some point in the next day, you're absolutely never going to go look at it. Right. 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 And that point. And you're going like, to blame it on somebody else probably to like, ah, it's probably right. their fault. Sometimes right. you're, and, and then like all of those dozen people have to interrupt their day to try and figure out whose diff broke the thing. And it's right. just like everybody, you know, it's just, just a whole mess. Um, but like, if you can get that, that feedback loop down, if you can write instrumentation as you're, as you're writing your code, you know, with an eye to your future self, like, how am I going to understand this? Um, and then you, and then you merge it. And if it auto deploys, I love auto deploy that this is the, the best thing I think we did at the beginning of Honeycomb. And it was un, unwittingly, it was just, we were, we were lazy. So we made our, <laughs> we made our CICD pipeline automatically de deploy to production every 10 minutes. And, and just having that loop um, meant that we, we grew up with it, right? It was never right. scary. It was never hard because it was just what we did from the beginning. And, and so you just knew you could merge it and you could look at it. It becomes muscle memory, right? And it becomes, you get that dopamine hit and you, and you don't feel like you're done until you've gotten the dopamine hit of like going and looking for it. And like that moment when you have just deployed it, like you have all the context in your head, you know exactly why you did it. You know what you tried, what trade-offs there were, what you didn't do, what the point of it was, you know, what the variables are named, what the functions are named, what, what failure will look like. And if you go look at it, like you will never again be as primed and ready to understand the code and see what's working or not, like ever. And nobody can ever come in your tracks and reconstruct what was in your head. Like that moment, it's only going to decay from there. And it's, precious and you should you should get it in you should look at it as quickly as possible another thing that i like to talk about with the deploys is like just the idea of judgment having good engineering judgment i think part of the way one of the only ways that you really develop good senior engineering level judgment is by immersing yourself in production not just looking at it when it's broken also looking at it when it's good right because that's how you know what normal looks like right? You ship your change and you go look at it. Nine times out of 10 or more, it'll be fine. But that trains you over time. This is what normal looks like. This is what right. weird looks like, right? And, and when I say don't deploy on Fridays, what, what I actually am saying is don't merge your code if you don't have the time to stick around and make sure it's okay, right? Because you should assume that once you've merged your code, it's going to go out. That's, that's an atomic operation as far as you're concerned, right? right. It merges, goes. So if it's 5 p.m. on a Tuesday and you're heading for the door, don't merge your fucking code. Your code. Right. <laughs> you know, if it's on Friday and you're feeling icky about it, like it's a big change or whatever, first first of all, feature flags are your friend here. Um, right, I was just going to say that, right. But but like, don't ship it, you know, don't merge. Like, I'm not saying remove the human element of deliberation. <laughs> I am right. saying absolutely build that sense within yourself, um, but just make it about whether or not you're going to merge instead of whether you're going to deploy. Because once you've severed that connective, that tight feedback loop between when you've written it and when you're looking at it, it's just all downhill from there.
And I, and the, I was going to bring up the point on feature flags because that's one of the things too where um, I think some people get confused when you're like, well, if I'm writing some big new feature, I want to wait till that feature is done before I merge that into the code base. Right. And I always look at it and I say, well, no, break the feature down to say, I have to deploy some new resource. Well, deploy the new resource and guess what? None of your code touches it, but make sure that the resource deployed, make sure it's there, have any tests you need against it, and then do yeah. another release where you add the ability to connect to that resource or whatever it is. And you can do that incrementally and again, yeah. you can turn the whole thing off, right? So your code never gets run for 99.9% of your users, except for yeah. maybe you or a couple others that you can turn that feature flag on. Code is like an iceberg. There's so much more underneath it than there is on the surface area. There's right. still a lot of value in getting it out into production, even if you're not quote unquote using it. It's still being used. It still has the potential to, to break or or Right. Or deploy cleanly, right? Um, small diffs still matter, even if you're like, well, but it's not. And and really, the thing about feature flags that's so brilliant is that it decouples deploys from releases. It right. makes the releases releases can be something that the product people think about or the marketing people think about, and deploys can be something that engineers think about. And you don't have to like have all this, you know waiting on each other and like timing and big bang deploys and you know the worst deploy it in, in the world is always the one after people come back from Christmas break. <laughs> That's you know, the worst outages of my life have 100,000% be, been in January, the first two weeks of January. That's the thing too. Like I love that idea of of saying you've got um, you know the deployments are what what engineers think about, releases are what marketing thinks about, and the, maybe the best thing that you could do to relieve the stress is give your marketing team like a big button they could press to yeah. flip the feature the feature flag for you, and then the engineers yeah. don't have to do anything. It's just exactly. yeah, you just enabled it. It's been running for weeks and it's been working fine. So you want to release it to everybody? Hit that button and then you're good yeah. to go. And you, know, you can be out having beers to, on a Friday afternoon or whatever it is you want. It, it will allow you to, you know, first release it to uh, maybe oh, internal users only, right? right? Or only the marketing team or only your beta users or, right? Like you should never think of deploys as an on-off switch. You should think it, of it as a, a process, sometimes quite lengthy process of increasing your confidence in new code, right? Progressive deployments are your friends. Canaries are your friends, right? Um, having having all these little like wiggly things around deploys like it's 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 a process. It's like it's baking in the oven. Like you can't trust it until it's you know been through its paces. Yeah, I like how um, your phrase was speed is safety, and I think what what you're saying right is do the work to eliminate the things that feel scary or not even that feel scary, that could be scary, like do the work so that those things are not scary. And the way to do that is through speed. And oh, I think yeah. you were going to say something. So before I quote you, do you want to follow up? Go for it. <laughs> okay. So one of the quotes that I love from you is you say, anxiety related to deploys is the single largest source of technical debt in many, many organizations. Technical debt, lest we forget, is not the same as air quote or quotes, bad code. Tech debt hurts your people. And so I think there's something here between, you know, bad code and let's talk about that versus like code smell. And there's maybe some sort of like some charity philosophy here that I'd want to dig into a little bit more. <laughs> uh, you know, I just think that the anxiety that people have around deployments, I, I, I get it. Like I've been in ops, <laughs> you know. Um, and this is not about making everyone a masochist like like we we have been traditionally. 
It's about that this is really the way that it gets better, right? And, you know, resiliency, reliability is not about making your systems never fail. It's about making it resilient to lots of failures. Hi, everyone. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Lumigo. We've talked a lot about observability on this podcast, and if you've listened to any of those episodes, then you know that it can be difficult to achieve serverless observability with traditional approaches. Though serverless comes with many opportunities and advantages, it also has some unique issues that some tools just aren't able to address. And those issues really need something meant for serverless environments. That's where Lumigo comes in. As a serverless-first monitoring platform, Lumigo lets developers quickly and easily find and fix errors and performance issues while also giving you an end-to-end -end view of the entire transaction across services and functions. All of the debugging information you need is conveniently in one place, and you're able to set up alerts so that you know what's happening and how it might affect the user experience. Lumigo also knows how to play nice with your existing tool chain, enabling you to send alerts to email, Slack, Microsoft Teams, Ops Genie, and more, and can also create tickets in JIRA straight from the issues page. Thanks to their automatic distributed tracing, it only takes four clicks to set up Lumigo with no manual code changes necessary. Sign up for free at Lumigo.io. So one of the things that you've also talked about in the past is just, you know, the idea of fast feedback loops, being able to invest in, you know, invest, invest time in ops. And I'm kind of curious because this is, uh, I, I saw a, a tweet, I think it was from um, uh, Liz Fong Jones, uh, it was just yesterday, where it was, she retweeted something about um, uh, another ops team who said the number of, of these uh, sort of uh, what do they call them? I guess developer influencers who talk about how CI/CD is supposed to be done and how all this is that those aren't even practiced in the organizations that they're working in, right? Because it's just it's hard. There's so much legacy stuff. There's so many hard. things that make it super hard to do. And I'm just curious when it comes to driving these types of changes, is yeah. it? Do the developers have to do it? Is it is it the existing ops people, whatever we want to, you know, however we want to classify them? Is it management? Like, where does this change come from? Where does that confidence, uh, how do you build that confidence within your organization? Who has to drive it? Well, I'll take anyone I can get. <laughs> <laughs> but um, ideally, I believe that this is a, I think that this is a responsibility of engineering managers. I think that, um, it's their job to translate between engineering needs and business needs. It's their job to make the case upward for why, you know, we need to miss these feature release dates in order to deal with this tech debt. It's their job to make the case that, you know, it's worth investing on inter people do not do nearly enough work in internal tools. There is this great essay by essay by Coda Hale about, about work and, and how you how you scale, you know, teams productivity and like Best case, if you're if you're just like hiring people, you can you can achieve linear productivity growth. Nobody actually achieves that. The only way that you can actually like achieve you know the kind of of productivity growth that you need in order to keep doing more work with fewer people um, is is by is by investing in those internal tooling systems, by doing migrations, by by keeping up your tool chain. You know, like. <laughs> So many developer resources are just wasted these days. You know, have you ever like looked at a company and like, oh, cool app? And you figure out they have like fifteen hundred developers. And you're like, right. what, what the are they doing? Fuck, are they all doing? <laughs> you know, I guarantee you, they have a nightmare of a release process because mm. it it just it it 
it it it magnifies it just like it 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 takes over from there like it all it all starts at that that one little interval between you know when you write it and when it's live if you don't get that right it's you you get into this death spiral where it takes longer because you've got bigger disks and you're deploying more people's code at once and it takes longer to figure it out and recover you know face i i've got a number that i've pulled out of my ass but i'm pretty sure it's true, which is that if it takes, you know, X number of engineers to build support, you know, your, your system with 15 minute, you know, time to time to life. Well, if it takes like an hour or two, it takes twice as many engineers. If it mm. takes like almost a day, at least it takes twice as many engineers again. If it takes a week, it takes twice as many engineers again. And if anything, I'm being um, conservative because Facebook showed that, you know, the, the, the amount of time that elapses between when you write the bug and when you find it, um, the cost of finding and fixing that bug goes goes up exponentially. You know, and so like engineering managers need to be making this fucking argument. You know, they're all asking for headcount when in fact, you know, you want to double your engineering cycles, fix your fucking build pipeline. You know, right. like engineering managers are, are too... They're, they're too, like, I don't know what the word is. Like, they're trying to fit in with all the business managers or something, or they're, they're not confident enough. This is a winning argument. This is an argument that will make your teams ecstatic. This is an argument that will get you promoted. This is an argument that works. Like, I've never heard of anyone who, like, invested time in, like, making their deploys better and stuff and was af afterwards like, oh, man, we shouldn't have done that. It <laughs> fucking works, right? This is, we need to be more aggressive about this because somebody's got to start it. And I don't care. Sometimes it's a CTO. Sometimes it's a VP of engineering. Sometimes it's a director or a manager, senior engineer. If that's you, like, even if you're a junior engineer, like, Start looking for ways to improve it. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit, I guarantee you. Making your build pipeline, you know, 15 minutes or less, it's just engineering. Instrument it as a trace, like use honeycomb, free tier, build events, instrument it as a trace, see where the time's going, fix it. Like every question that you have about that build pipeline, where the time's going, is a great question to have. Do you still need that 15 minute thing that like builds build packs and like ships artifacts? Do you still need, can you parallelize this? Does this right. still relevant? Like these are questions and it, it, it just accumulates so much fucking craft, you know, and nobody's like having the discipline to keep that number down. I, I think that, you know, if I was a VP of a random engineering team, I would set an SLO for this is this is code has to, has to go out in 15 minutes or less, right? And you know, engineers, engineering managers, <laughs> your reviews will factor in how successful you are at the four Dora metrics, how often your teams get paged after after hours, and how well you're able to stick to this time, right? right. And and if they're mm. like, no, 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 legacy and like corporate and lawyers and everything. At least start this for new services. At least auto-deploy new shit that you bring up so you aren't just adding to the pile. Right, and Accelerate, I mean, uh, the, you know, the book Accelerate does point the, the uh, correlation between developer happiness and, the, and how fast their code gets into production. Absolutely. This is, this is, you know, developers leave because of frustration with their tools. Nobody ever got burned out for shipping too much code, you know? Developers get burned out from doing all the shit that's preventing them from ship shipping code, right? If, you know, and I'm not someone who is a fan of overworking people. I believe as right. an engineer, you've got about three, maybe four hours a day of real focused 
hard engineering work in you. And if you can get that in, moving the company forward three or four hours a day meaningfully is 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 phenomenal. It is remarkable. It, it That is rapid progress. The problem is people are working 15 hour days and getting maybe 20 or 30 minutes of actually moving the, the business forward out of all that. Yeah. So you've always been a big proponent of providing environments that like respect and encourage like this, this balance between work and life and actually having productive time, even if it's a shorter window of time, but like actually use that time for being productive. Um, I'm wondering if you have any advice for folks like who maybe think that they're doing that, how might they be able to smell out if they're not actually doing that? Is it simply a measure of okay, how, how much time do my engineers actually have to work and what are they getting done in that? Or like, what can they ask themselves to like actually reflect on whether or not yeah. they're... Yeah, just ask yourself, you know, am I moving the business forward? You know, like toil is not moving the business forward, right? Toil is clearing the, the road so that you can try and move the business forward. If, you know, I want to empower engineers to be able to spend most of their time on feature work, right? Um, it just has to be done correctly. And that means investments. That means, you know, not leaving your technical debt till it threatens to swallow you, right? If you're moving the company forward, you know, I mean, it's a happiness index as much as anything, right? It makes people happy right. when they're able to move things forward. I think you could probably just like take the temperature of an every engineering team. I've done this before in the past. Just ask them on a scale of one to 10, you know, what percentage of your time do you think you spend moving the business materially forward? You know, 50%, 60%. People get pretty fucking close. Like they know how much of their time is is worth 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 spending on what they're doing. Especially when they're uh, when you have a bunch of developers stuck in meetings all day. That's super productive. <laughs> yeah. But um so so we're starting to run out of time and I just want to quickly ask a question that we had from one of our listeners who knew you were going to be on the show. Um and they just wanted to know if if you've seen a significant difference um in sort of DevOps practices between people who are building serverless infrastructures versus other infrastructures, or is is there is there a way to to sort of see that that breakdown, or, or or is it pretty much the same? Oh, that's very interesting. Um, hmm. I mean, uh, the uh, the lack of real durability of the data is certainly an interesting thing with serverless, and and the the fact that I don't know what state of the art is now. Certainly, when I was really looking at it, the uh, um, there wasn't really much of an idea of staging environments, which I kind of dig. <laughs> right. I, I'm a fan of testing in production, as as you might <laughs> as you might know. Um, I think that it forces you to be a little bit. It forces you to treat your code as something that you're constantly you're in conversation with it in production every day, right? You have to go check it in production. You have, you know. I think that the way that serverless approaches instrumentation is kind of the way I see the entire industry should be approaching it, which is like approach it as though, you know, you're, you're asking your code itself to understand, you know, from its perspective, like, where's my time going, et cetera. And, and not paying so much attention to like, you know, hardware metrics or like, you know, the shit under slash proc or, or, you know, all of these meaningless dashboards that, you know, you really shouldn't have to look at as a software engineer. Um, but like just having a habit of, you know, capturing every every HTTP call and every database query and the time elapsed and the raw query and the normalized query and, and just like gathering all this stuff 
aggregating it around the request and shipping it off, you know, as an arbitrarily wide structured data blob. So I think there are differences there. Um, uh, but I don't, I don't really feel like I'm completely up on serverless stuff enough to really comment. So in January 2022, and as you said, January is one of your favorite times to come back and have a release because it's always the best right after Christmas. But something is <laughs> something really exciting is really happening in January 2022. And that is your new book, Observability Engineering, Achieving oh, Production yeah. Excellence, is coming out. Um, you co-authored it with Liz Fong-Jones and George Miranda. Super exciting. Mm -hmm. Love to be able to say their names on the show as well. And for those with an O'Reilly account, you can actually go and read the early release version. But Charity, will you tell us a little bit about who this book is for and what people should expect to get out of it come January 2022? Yeah, um, we've tried to make it very approachable and friendly and written in English, you know, um, but it's just for people who, whether you're new to observability or whether you're fairly experienced in the field, we try to make it very practical. You know, where do you start? What is it? How is it different? Um you know, separate some of the marketing hype from from the reality. Like, what what trends, both technical and and you know architectural, are are driving it? Um, who needs it? Who doesn't need it? Should you buy or should you build? Um, how do you instrument? How do you do traces? How do you you know what some of the you know philosophy behind it, and and also some of the you know we've got a guest chapter from Frank Chen at Slack on 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 CI/CD plus observability. We've got. Um, you know, chapters on um, on uh, on what tools you you need to use in order to achieve like um, high cardinality and high dimensionality, and we've got you know robust explanations for for why it's not observability if you don't have those things. Um, but you know, we it's less philosophy and that sort of like definition boring and just more you know. To the point that so some places a little bit of a, a grab bag of stuff. It's just like this was useful, put it in there. This was useful, put it in there. It's not really a chapter, but put it in there. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't mind having a book that just titled "This is Useful." Yeah, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> well, I've uh, I've read a couple of chapters because I do have an O'Reilly account, which is super useful, by the way. If, I mean, getting to read some of these books as they're being written um, is uh, is really helpful, but. Uh, yeah, practical advice. I mean, ops-minded people. I think this is the definitely the book um, for them to for them to pick up and look at. So and for software engineers and for software, and software engineers, engineers who take right. the responsibility seriously. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Totally agree. So we are out of time. Um, Charity, thank you so much for being here and sharing thank all this you, with Charity. us. Um, if yeah, people want to find out more about you uh, and and uh, and Honeycomb and all that kind of stuff, what's the best way to do that? Um. Uh, my. My personal site is charity.wtf, and I'm on Twitter at Nipsey Tipsy. There's also the honeycomb.io slash blog. Awesome. Well, we will get all that in the show notes. Thanks again, Charity. Sweet. Thank you. And that's this week's serverless chat. Rebecca and I want to give a huge thank you to Charity Majors for being our guest this week and to our sponsor, Lumigo. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 118. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sound up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with Rebecca on Twitter at Becca Odele and me at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. 
Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.